Hello and welcome to Ed Talk with Anuj. Happy New Year everybody. Happy 2022. But before I begin introducing my wonderful guest for this episode, an important note. Now some of this conversation might be an unintended trigger for some listeners because this episode deals with some conversations around some serious concerns that our society continues to struggle with. Concerns that we often are reluctant to even acknowledge, let alone address and resolve. My conversation with her is about awareness and prevention of uh, child sexual abuse, domestic violence and the long-term consequences of being a society that turns a blind eye to its most common issues. So while the conversation is important to be heard, for those of you who might feel triggered, please tune out at the first instance of distress and seek support for your emotional wellness. And if you're a child listening in, I would recommend please have an adult with you for supervision. Thank you. And here we go. You're listening to Ed Talk with Anuj, a podcast that takes you back to school to understand how far we all have come and the future we're all headed towards. My name is Anuj and this is my attempt to explore the evolution of the Indian education system through the lens of people from various walks of life. Happy listening. Now, as I've mentioned on earlier episodes, I come from a family of educationists and as part of our awareness and empowerment training in, in the school that we run, a few of our teachers attended a workshop on awareness about prevention of child sexual abuse. They returned astonished at the revelations. The unlearning, the learning that they had during the workshop was, uh, was so inspiring to them that the moment I heard that uh, the lady conducting it was doing one in Hyderabad. I jumped at the opportunity and I attended it myself. Now, despite the fact that I am a largely open-minded, privileged and emotionally liberated individual, I still found traces of deep conditioning within my own self, something I wasn't even aware of. So to go through the process of the workshop and experience that kind of unlearning was almost like finding a deeper connection with myself. And I've had the honor of being associated with her ever since. She is uh, someone who started her journey with a love for theatre and stories at a very young age. Her personal journey led her to becoming a warrior working for the empowerment of youth, women, children, society. She works extensively and intensively with women and adolescents in difficult and challenging circumstances, in prisons with victims under trial, with survivors in situations of domestic violence, sexual abuse and incest in physically and mentally challenged individuals. She also works with the policy and decision makers who have the potential of making systemic change in the country. And she leads the organization Sakshi that I'm very happy to be associated uh, and support for, uh, for some time now. She's a teacher, a healer, a teller of stories and a champion for human rights. I welcome to my podcast a wonderful, generous soul, the ever-positive Smita Bhartiji. Welcome. Thank you so much for being on Ed Talk with Anuj. Thanks, Anuj. Thank you for having me here. And that was a very, very generous introduction. I'm not sure I deserve each and every bit of what you said, because my life and my journey has just been about doing. So thank you once again for those very generous words. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, and, and of course, thank you for coming in from, from London, where you are uh, right now. Uh, we're all still going through turbulent times and we've entered 2022. Two after two years of yes. I, I I don't don't even have the exact words to describe the mixed emotional journey that all of us have gone through in these in these two years. It's life changing events. 
absolutely <laughs> i mean completely transformational in so many ways for so many people yes you know uh, never before in the history of time i think has the world been plagued by a single concern yes the entire planet is facing a singular concern which is a minuscule little virus yes. and um how has how have these two years been for you um they've been actually um they started off without knowing it's going to be two years and more or how mm-hmm. or what's going to change so it just started as oh oh my god we need to stop not just stop stop but just stop the way we are living like i was somebody who was traveling every single week and the carbon footprints i was leaving i'm not proud of but i was traveling every single week and that was the reality of my life and then it ended up one month two months three months six months eight months without stepping out of the house or without going you know so it has been a time when it has compelled me at least and i don't know how many others to actually relook and evaluate about everything that we seemed was so super important and so inevitable and so non-negotiable in the way we were living actually really was just fluff we didn't really need any of that <laughs> and much of what we needed which was supposed to be from inside us the strength and the resilience that we needed i don't think enough time was being spent on that to cultivate that to mm. really look at that so i think it's been a it's been a time of lot of reevaluation i would never have stayed out um, for as long as i am now in the uk with my daughter in my previous avatar but now this is important spending time with her participating in her life like looking at what's happening with her on a day to day basis i think is much more important to me today than it has ever been i i resonate with that because uh it's 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 one way i try and summarize this entire period of our lives and a lot of us never thought that in our lifetimes we would see a time like this yes but the distinction between needs and wants uh has never been more clear and yet when unlock happened it doesn't take time for us to bounce back to what we used to be <laughs> old habits die hard like they old say it's die hard you know um but i still think there's a difference i mean i mm. mean i i know uh, there are many uh, considerations for what is the apparent uh, bounce back which ranges from mental health to economic uh, resilience i would say but even then i think there is a difference i think there is a little more consideration a little more thinking a little more inclusiveness a little more resistance uh, i can say you know so there's a little more uh, unacceptance of things that we just accepted you know it's like yeah. there's nothing that we can do about it we just have to accept it but here's like hey seriously at least at least this much thinking is there seriously is there really nothing we can do about it Isn't there anything we can do about it? You know, so these kind of conversations, I think, are much right. more prevalent now. Yes, the more solution-oriented approach to yes. life in general. Yes. Uh, take me back to when you fell in love with stories of people, and how did that shape your childhood? I don't think I ever remember a time when I was not in love with stories. As young as six or seven. eight as young as that you know now it's it's like when i look at my granddaughter she's reading all the time and and she has access to all those books but when i was young i'm talking about what the early 70s the late 60s early 70s we didn't have access to so many books we didn't have you know 
that kind of uh, uh, opportunities. So when I got my first form prize, and I remember it was a, it was an Edit Blyton and it was a form prize like was given to a student who had done well in class, I suppose. Um, it was an Edit Blyton book called Bimbo and Topsy, a story uh. about a cat and dog. It's etched in my mind. That was my first book, right? And after that, I think I've never stopped. I've just been reading and reading and reading anything, anything. I would read anything. I was reading way beyond my years, way too early. But I think the, the fascinating story in my life is because my love for theater started from somewhere there. So I don't know if how many of us know about Shimla. There's an um, auditorium over there called Getty Theater, which is there mm-hmm, from mm-hmm. the time of the Britishers, right? Yes. So summer capital, the Britishers would go to Shimla and then have all these performances. And um, and I was, I don't know, nine Nine, eight, nine, ten, those years, right? Really formative, yes. Eight, nine, ten. Um, and my uncle, maternal uncle, was working. He was also young in college. He was working as a volunteer in Getty Theatre. And they had a basement clean, right? And um, he ended up home with about a hundred of those books. They were these long-form, um, uh, green-colored uh, books, really old paper. These are original three-act plays that were performed by the Britishers um, in Getty Theatre over wow. I don't know how many decades. Yeah, original three-act plays. Okay, wow. comedy, comedy, and not, not they were all they were not slapsticks. They were situational comedies, and that was the fodder on which I grew up. I was just like, and I had already kind of started reading a lot, so. I didn't know what I was reading, but I was reading and I was laughing and I was reading those dialogues and I was laughing away to glory and I was spouting those dialogues and I was acting those dialogues. And, you know, I, I just lived those three, three, four years of my life on those on those books. And uh, Beautiful. I think that's where it started. Knowing stories, whether they were fictional or non-fictional, how did it shape your emotional sensibilities when you were interpreting the world around you? Ah. Uh, it was actually, you're making me look back, hindsight. <laughs> but but I think, you know, what it did for me, if I look back at my childhood, at one end, I lived with my head in the clouds. Literally, like I would look at clouds. I would spend uh, I could spend hours and hours looking at clouds and, you know, um, creating stories out of them about this cloud becoming this shape and this taking over this and this is what is happening over there. And on the other hand, I remember being extremely mature emotionally, like always being able to step into another person's shoes and being able to understand what they're thinking and what they're feeling and, you know, why they're doing what they're doing. And so actually kind of becoming almost like a concave kind of a person. And so Mm. I, I, I remember many adults being coming and talking to me, even though I was a child. But, you know, kind of emotionally unburdening themselves because somewhere somewhere I had that capacity to really understand very mature and adult uh, situations and emotions. And Right. Was was that one of the factors that led you to want to become a teacher? <laughs> no, not at all. In fact, I, I think I never wanted to be a teacher. <laughs> <laughs> wow, okay. I, um, it, it was never on the cards. I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to be a theater actor, a director. I wanted to be a doctor. I never wanted to be a teacher, you know, but life had other plans. So I, although I was, I studied to be a doctor, 
I couldn't go into becoming a doctor. I couldn't go into becoming a, an actor. I couldn't take up writing professionally for the longest period of my life. And in hindsight, when I look back, I think all those corners that happened and all the twists in my life that happened were actually preparing me with a much deeper understanding of an aspect of life that not many of us really understand, right? Coupled with the kind of preparation that I had as a child, reading the stories and theater and performing and all of that, then all the situations that happened in my life, um, which was a complete cycle of uh, sexual violence. And it never really became like I want to be a teacher or an educator. I, it was just for me, I understand something. I have information today, which I wish I had 10 years ago. Mm. Can I share this information with others, young ones who are at the critical decision-making turn of their life, where if they have this information, maybe the choices and decisions that they make may take them in a direction which is more, which is less harmful than it possibly can be. And I remember, um, I remember starting on this journey by just sitting under trees in colleges with just a group of girls or boys and just, you know, telling them stories or talking to them. So I just became a storyteller. Um, I didn't realize I was becoming an educator then. It was just for me to with my whole dramatic capability, animating a story, telling a story with all the life experience hindsight that I had and the understandings that I had and and then the, the readings and the studies that I had done to get a framework understanding of what really happened in life. Like, what was all that about, you know? Like, I experienced something, but now I want to understand what happened. So there was that kind of studies that happened that I, I grilled myself into reading up and understanding and putting it into frameworks. And then all of that together became my journey into becoming an educator. So are stories your safe spaces? Actually, yes. They are, they're not safe stories, but mm -hmm. they are my safe spaces. Um, and then I say they're not safe stories because they're not designed to lull you into a placebo and say everything is fine. They are designed to make you sit up and think and question and examine and interrogate and resist. But they're safe spaces because they allow you to do that without actually being in that situation yourself personally and getting harmed. What is a safe space? I think a safe space is a very difficult place to create and sustain because it's dynamic. Because any space is an ebb and flow of power. And wherever there is a misuse of power in any aspect, that space is not a safe space because that has the potential to get weaponized whatever is there. It could be my phone. It could be a word I speak or anything has the potential to get weaponized if I'm misusing that power, right? So safe space is a place where there is a very conscious effort by all those who are the custodians of that space to keep it safe for themselves and for the other. Despite any trigger, provocation, temptation, you know, adrenaline, anything, the commitment is to keep it harm-free. And how far have we arrived in 
in that quest to create safe spaces or to make spaces harm-free for, um, of course, our children, our women, all of us together? I'm not sure I'm equipped to answer that question. Um, there are lots and lots and lots of people globally who are working to create that in mm. small droplets. And I'm, I, I wake up every morning with the conviction that one day those droplets are going to join together and become the ocean. Uh, they're still droplets. And I think uh, it's not as if, if today I'm not you created a safe space, it's going to be safe tomorrow. Hmm. Human behavior is such, the, the play of power is such. And, and then if I bring it back into when you're talking about children and women, then the deeply embedded mindsets, which have actually not considered women and children or any other gender but the male gender as a um, person, hmm. entitled person, um, it's an unsafe space. Because that's just the way we've grown up. Not because anybody has a bad intention. You mm. don't have a bad intention. But you just mm. don't know any other way. And many of your actions might actually end up unknowing to you. Keep contributing to building unsafe spaces and structures for women and children and any other gender. But yourself. When you said that you don't know any other way, it is of course lack of awareness, lack of mentoring, lack of... Um, information that is dispensed to an adult at a younger age yeah. often that that is the case mm -hmm. um what is if 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 i can ask you from a layman's term i mean i i'm in one way i'm glad that we're having so much conversation now more than ever on various platforms whether it's social media online offline because with the advent of technology and communication we're able to share stories mm. share our uh, inner thoughts and resonate, cause that resonance amongst a larger group of people. So the conversations are growing. Uh, we're often talking about entitlement, about privilege, about patriarchy, about feminism. How would I explain this to an uninitiated mind of what is patriarchy or what is privilege? Um, layman's terms, right? Hmm. Uh. I was somebody who was very against using the word patriarchy for the longest period of my time till I found, okay, there's just no other way but to use this word and bring it out but or or privilege or, in, or any of these words which help you to just immediately get into. So, so it's just now, like you said, recently everybody started using these terms, right? More yeah. and more in common parlance. Before yeah. that, it was reserved for academics or people who didn't take the studies or social studies or whatever. Yeah. So, um, but if you're looking at it, it's just really about if one group of people has an opportunity at the cost of many other groups of people or even one group of people or any one single group of people also. That's what you're privileged. And it's it's just the way it is. Like you would not even think that, okay, this can be any other way. It's your privilege, right? You have the, the upper class, the upper caste, the privilege of being a man, right? I I, I come from a very privileged space myself. Mm. Mm. I didn't recognize it as privilege. Or I can say, oh, I can, I but I've suffered this, I've suffered, that's fine. But my suffering is probably still from a very privileged place because I had resources 
available to me, opportunities accessible to me to be able to take the actions that I could to repair the harm or uh, damn the harm or, you know, push it away or get out of a situation or do whatever. But when there are groups of people around you who actually do not have access to resources, materials, opportunities, and it's denied only because they happen to be that particular group of people, mm. something that you take so much for granted, right? That's, that's privilege. That's entitlement that I'm talking about. When you just say, oh, I'm entitled to, if I'm talking about from a, um, a male sense of entitlement in the context of gender, now context differ, right? Every context, the sure. meaning shifts. If I'm just talking in terms of, uh, in the context of gender, and I'm talking about entitlement, you know, male entitlement. We say the male entitlement actually is what is actually creating a culture of rape. Right. How do you equate that? How do you build the blocks in between? Because I believe a woman's body is a commodity, is an object. Mm. And I'm entitled to um, look at that body, use that body, access that body. That body is designed or is there, is available for my benefit. Mm. You're operating out of a sense of entitlement. I'll bring you another thing, okay? Um, I had a conversation some other point, some at some point over there, and there they said women are natural caregivers. They have inherent skills and competencies for um, negotiation or, you know, being gentle or keeping peace. And, you know, so, right. so we should actually en encourage them to become HR resources. And I'm saying just the very fact that you're saying that women are inherently caregivers or naturally sensitive or empathetic or um, are good at negotiation is in itself a reflection of structural violence over here, reflection of your patriarchal mindset over here. Because how many men have been pushed into a corner in their life where they've had to exercise these competencies hmm. and develop them? of negotiating, of mediating, of doing dialogue for something very basic and simple as maybe the right to what? Watch TV or go out or wear some clothes or buy something for them. I don't know. I mean, I'm just, I'm just yeah, yeah, yeah. random and they yeah. may sound like very privileged kind of actions. But just, just think about from yeah. any life perspective, how often do men have to negotiate within the household and how often do women have to negotiate within the household for basic, simple things? The fundamentals of existence. So obviously mm. they're developing this competency within them, which mm. is an output of structural violence inherent within that structure. And for us to just take it for granted and say, hey, you know what? Women are naturally like, why aren't men naturally like that? Men and women are both naturally like that. It's just that if I exercise one muscle more over the other, I'll have biceps. And you won't have hmm. biceps because you've not exercised that muscle. Hmm. Men have the entitlement of brute force. They just, they, they, I want a TV remote, I'll take it. Hmm. I come back from work, I, I'm entitled to have cooked food. Hmm. Simple things. Yeah. It's, it's inherent. In that, this privilege that um, we just spoke about, about men and women, 
and then there is the whole world of adults and children mm-hmm. um and the power dynamics there mm-hmm. in households in schools in in general everyday life where tum bachche ho chup raho tumhe nahi pata yeah which is known as uh, what we say adultism adultism or being patronizing being condescending yeah. uh, how do those power dynamics work there in a traditional setup just just as what you're saying because uh, children are meant to be seen not heard and that's taken very very literally right children are meant to be seen not heard <laughs> we've all grown up with that and that's inherent that's that's deeply embedded Shh, right quiet bade baat kar rahe adults are talking right now we know what's best we have lived our life we know what is good for you you don't know anything no it's okay it's just gaslighting no nothing you just imagining things nothing like that is probably happening what is there to feel bad about it are right? what is there in that you should be working hard in studying what is this mental health nonsense dismissing not listening not understanding not being inclusive in that space using the power that you have as an adult over the powerlessness that the child has of being dependent on you for resources emotional intellectual material or resources there's a huge power dynamics in play over there mm. and we all unthinkingly use it we unthinkingly we don't mean any harm to the children with there are children of course you think i'm that kind of a person who would want to harm my own child of course not but am i also ready to hear that unknowingly because of some learned behaviors which are necessarily not coming from informed places that i may actually be harming my own child or the children within my care or that i may be failing in my responsibility as a primary caregiver we don't have an environment where we feel safe to hear those things about ourselves hmm. we feel it's a huge judgment on us we feel it's an intrusion it's a judgment it's a it's a cr- transgression of our personal boundaries it's like who are you to talk to us about something like that i know what is best in my own household so household in our country in our in our setup is much more important than any rights based conversation right right and now this power dynamic is it's a it's a vicious cycle because the adults exercising their authority and power over the children of today were children at one point over whom there was a uh, power exercised and that vicious loop is what we are constantly stuck in because that's the behavior conditioning that is happening generation after generation after generation so it all lies there and in this environment what roles do school pl- schools have to play because as far as as much as we call schools temples of learning I have through way of this podcast and my own experiences I have realized that there are more temples of unlearning <laughs> than than learning. So what roles should schools play? So in this whole journey of where I am today there was one full phase where I did end up teaching in a KFI school right? Hmm. so that was like apart from doing what i do now which is a more informal formal way of teaching uh, as an educator taking forward the work that we're doing here um i did belong to a formal informal school setup 
the KFI school. And I think that for me was a real eye-opener, huge eye-opener, because I realized over there that they, they made me realize that, that it doesn't matter the subject that the child is learning in the class. Two plus two, they'll always understand is equal to four. It is what the person who is teaching, who is this this power figure in that moment where the child, who the child is idolizing and is receiving from, it's the entire setup of that person which the child is imbibing. So mm. if the child is not learning two plus two. Child is learning the tone of voice. Child is learning the emotional environment. The child is learning about how the teacher is actually being with them. Is she, is she or he being kind or not kind, inclusive or exclusive, authoritarian? So that's what the child is imbibing right now. And that, I think, is the more important discussion that we need to have about who are the people who are teaching. Where are they coming from? What is the baggage that they come with into the class? What is the momentum, that personal momentum that they bring with them into the class? What kind of people are they? What value systems are they bringing into the class? What value systems are they actually exercising and practicing within the class with the students? I don't think much attention is given to that. And that's what I learned over there in the KFI school. Like we came in a week, 10 days earlier. And um, it was like, huh. we just had discussions like KFI. Okay, so it was a KFI school. So our the framework of discussions was the, the, the Krishnamurti readings. Yep. It can be anything. It can be anything. That was the framework I learned from. Okay. So you're having readings and you're talking larger questions. Not that you're doing your curriculum, you're doing your lesson plans, you're doing the work that you're doing, but you're also doing larger questions. You're also going deeper into yourself. You're also not meditating, but ruminating on yourself and the value system that you're bringing in or the conflicts or challenges that you're coming from and, and opening it up in the context of a universal conversation based on the philosophy that we are reading at that point of time, right? So, just like sweater udhirta hai, to wo sweater ki tarah pure unravel ho jate ho. And then you knit yourself back together without any wrinkles in between so that when the children come to the class, you're actually ready to receive their baggage, their momentum because they're coming from an environment as well. So, they're not just coming there to read and write. They're coming there with everything and if the teacher, if the school within that has the educator has a capacity to sort it out, receive it, sort it out. Two plus two, the mm-hmm. Two plus two, the ghar pe bhi ho Two plus two online ho hai. Two plus two, the ho <laughs> It's what children were missing during the pandemic was uh, the value education, the social development, the emotional development, the camaraderie, the community-based learning. Because subjects to apps bhi sikha dete hain, but ye baatein aap online nahi sikh paate ho. I'd like to take this conversation about power dynamics to another level and uh, why is sex used as a tool of power? Um, there's so much to it. Huh? I mean, this is such a loaded question. My head is really... Uh, yeah, I know, I know. Sorry if I just... Yeah. Million uh, things. No, I'm just trying to 
separate the strands so we can talk about it. Because um, there's sex. There's a conversation about sex. Okay? And there's a misuse of sex. Hmm. Right? Hmm. So, when we say, why is sex used as, uh, what do you say? Tool of power, right? A tool of power or an expression of power. Power uh, as in being able to control Hmm. a space, control a person, control. Hmm. Okay, where do I begin? Women's bodies have been, women per se, are not considered as people, right? They're considered as belongings of men. Properties or entitlements. Yeah, Yeah, it it belongs to men. So, So, right from way back, if you want to harm another man, harm the woman, you know, harm the woman, right? So, wars are written on the bodies of women from time immemorial. Wow. Mm. Johar, what was that? Mm. Women just putting themselves into fire, honor killings during the partition, women getting. So, it's about winning and losing a war, a battle, a fight, by harming another group, man, individual, group, country, so on, bigger and bigger. If the women women are harmed, then there's no bigger harm than that. And the way to harm a woman is to have uh, forced sex with her, right? Now, why is forced sex so much of harm for the man? Because honor is ascribed to it, okay? My honor lies in my women. Miri is kasawale. Right? So sex is a weapon. It's been weaponized. Right? It's a weapon used to win a war. Hmm. That's one kind of power. Sex being used as power, right? At the same time, if I'm talking about conversations, right, we don't want to talk about sex because talking about sex is taboo. Okay? That's another that silencing of that conversation is another kind of power. Okay, which right. can again be opened up in multiple ways. Right. So on one hand, I'm weaponizing sex for war, for larger gains, right? The other hand, I am silencing a conversation around sex because that is that taboo, that is power that I'm exercising and saying, this is not something that get, needs to get discussed, right? And then you have uh, forced sex, right? Sexual assault. child sexual abuse. This is just like breaching the personal boundaries of another person with the intention to harm Hmm. or with no uh, consideration of the harm from a place of entitlement. I can get away with it. I can do this. I I have the power which entitlement gives me to use the body of another for my own gratification. Not necessarily sexual gratification, but power gratification. Okay. Sexual assault is not driven by lust. It's driven by power. Hmm. Child sexual abuse is not driven by lust. It's driven by, I can get away with it. Why is sex used as a power? Because sex is, has been ascribed so much of a value um, that, like, I, I really love Flavia Agnes and one of her quotes. One years ago, and this is, I think, in the 80s, uh, early 90s, sometime, I don't remember when, but really way back when nobody was talking about it. And 
But they said, no, if you get raped, it's better that a woman dies. A woman wants to die if she's raped. And she said, I've told my daughters, if anything like that ever happens to you, it's just an accident. You just come home. Mm. Okay? No need to feel ashamed about it. I said, I love you. Okay. And there's much more. This conversation is a separate conversation altogether. Yeah, of course, of course. And I mean, and, and this is, a, I, I completely very, agree. There are too many strands in this. And I think it's, it's very layered, this, this entire conversation. Abuse, sexual abuse within marriage is not considered. Marital rape doesn't have a standing even today because hmm. it's coming from that entitlement of conjugal rights. Right. Right. Consent has no meaning there. Although hmm. we say without consent, it's, it's sexual assault. Sexual abuse, but we say consent has no meaning when it's happening within your, you know, so the intimate boundaries of the exactly. So it's just a, it's a lot of things over there. So I, I, I completely get it. This is a very layered question, and and it's a, it's a, it's a very long discussion to unravel all of these, these uh, threads. But in a nutshell, if I could uh, ask you to tell us, how do we create sex positivity? in our education system, in the minds of, of children, who are going to be the adults of tomorrow and go further in breaking this vicious loop that we have been stuck in uh, for, for generations now? I think conversation. I think conversation, getting rid of our own um, moralistic taboos that we have around anything sexual first. Again, it comes back to the educators, right? If I'm talking to most teachers today, they themselves, whenever I've been invited to do this kind of a program for schools or work with you know students, I say, hey, listen, I can do that. But I would only do that if this program is also extended both to the parents of those children, parents of the students, and the teachers of the students. Mm. Okay? Because it's no... because it's, it's the adults which are more uh, restricted in their thinking, hmm. more moralistic in their thinking and belief system, which is not anything negative, which is not going against them, but it's just that's the that's how they have uh, imbibed things around them, right? So if we start opening up the spaces for conversation, inclusive conversations, just having a safe space for people to be able to talk about everything, everything, without judgment, without denial, without kind of dismissal. If we're just able to have people talk, and if we have informed and empathetic community of listeners, people who can hear them, whoever is talking and mm. accept it, I think that's the starting point. Because from there, many things will start getting resolved. Because once I'm able to articulate something without getting judged, I myself uh, resolve so many things. But if it is just inside me, it's just it's just churning inside me without any air and light, then it can get vitiated. Mm. Right? And all I'm getting is is opinions, everybody's opinions and everybody's judgments around it. This is right. This is wrong. There's a lot of morality around it. Then what emerges out of it is going to be very dysfunctional coping mechanisms or dysfunctional mechanisms or dysfunctional behaviors that come out of it. But if I have the space where I can have conversations about it, informed conversations about it, conversations where I can just discuss things. I mean, just before coming here, when I said I have a thing, we were talking to a group of about 12 girls 
And there was, and each one of them was just coming up and saying, you know what, this is such a safe space. I can say anything without feeling guilty because you're listening mm-hmm. to us. And you're just sharing your own experiences and you're putting it all out over here into a context for us. You know, so Just the ability to be able to talk about whoever, however, whatever you think you're feeling, learning, exploring, wanting to know, experiencing. But with hard-coded traditional uh, behavior patterns within our general society. Uh, I also remember one of my biggest takeaways from the workshop that I did with you was that, if I'm not wrong, please correct me if I'm mistaken, 90-95% of the perpetrators of child sex abuse are within the known and trusted circle mm. of, of the child. With such a large percentage of, of people, how does one initiate these conversations, opening up these conversations, uh, facing the resistance of our traditionally frozen behavior patterns in society? Uh, because the consequences of these conversations are very long term. You don't have overnight changes. No. Um, so how, how do we tackle the resistance? How do we tackle these hard-coded behavior patterns? Have you had any breakthroughs that you could... Yeah. So so there are two two things in your question which you're talking about over here. When, one, when you're saying that, yes, child sexual abuse, 90 to 90% of it is within known and trusted circles. It could be within the school setup or it could be within the family setup or people that you know within your community and things like that. And that makes it, uh, and if and if the numbers that we're talking about is 50%, like one, one in two is a survivor, of sexual abuse in their childhood up to the age of 18, then we're talking about a huge number of people who have been abused and who are the abusers, per se. And in such a space, how is it that you can actually initiate conversations which are sexual in nature safely hmm. in a safe space? Right? Hmm. That's hmm. one part of your question that you're asking. Yeah. Yeah. And the other part of the question is about all those people where denial is so deep and silence is also strong. Denial is the word. That's Denial right. is deep and silence is strong. And there's so much of stigma and shame associated with anything sexual that any conversation like that is going to be impossible. So how do we unfreeze those spaces? Mm. Now, mm. both of these are very, very critical and important questions. And I don't think I have all the answers for this. Sure. Because, sure. Um, but some of the solutions that we are trying, trying out for this is because, again, it may sound simplistic, but it is not information. Creating a community of young adults who are informed, uh, who have the tools to be able to talk about these things, right? Just today when I was talking about this, and I'm digressing a little, going back to the conversation I had a little earlier than this conversation, these young girls were asking me the same question, but how do we do this? Because nobody wants to talk about it in the family, and if we talk about it, then we are considered bad people. And I said, okay, so you know what? There is a tap in your kitchen which is leaking and it's just leaking. Tip, 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 tip. The tap is leaking. Okay. What are you going to do about it? We're going to, I'm going to tell my mother and then, and my mother is going to make sure that somebody comes to fix it. I said, if nobody comes to fix it, if it's just going on and on for 10 days, nobody's talking about it. I said, a leaking tap we will talk about. But something which is harmful in a sexual space, we will not talk about. We have to talk about it so much 
that it becomes as normal and as natural as talking about a leaking tap which needs to be fixed. This is a dysfunctional behavior in this household which needs to be fixed. That's it. Without making everybody into a criminal. I was reading this some really interesting thing over here that all of us perform illegal acts sometime or the other in our life. We all break the law. Yeah. It makes it an illegal act. Okay? But we don't, we're not considered criminals. Now, the biggest, I'm not saying child sexual abuse is not a criminal act. Do not yeah, say yeah. It is a criminal act. It is. But arresting that criminal and putting that criminal behind bars is probably not the only solution that we have. Because within a family, it becomes extremely difficult to be able to identify this is my uncle, this is my brother, this is my uh, father, this is my um, uh, relative, and I'm going to put them behind bars. So how do we create a community accountability over there, which makes them responsible and accountable for their behavior, makes them recognize what they have done is not acceptable, it's a non-negotiable, and stops that behavior, separates the harm giver from the harm receiver, abuser from the abused, separates that, stops the behavior immediately. That's a lot of responsibility and alertness I need, right? To make my home child sexual abuse proof. When we have babies in the house and I've just become a grandmother, so you have to make the house baby proof, right? You have to make the house dog yeah. proof. Okay, yeah. dogs should not be able to eat chocolates and if you leave chocolates lying around after Christmas and dogs eat the chocolates and you're like, ah, dog, but you have to make the house dog proof, right? Baby yeah. proof. Yeah. You have to do the same vigilance for making the house child sexual abuse proof. Have conversations about it. Talk about it. Open it up. Address the denial. Yes, it's a frozen space. You have to thaw it. Mm. Make it as normal and as natural as a leaking tap in the bathroom and that's a conversation we need to have and fix it immediately. Mm. It's not an easy journey only because it makes, puts in a lot of burden for each one of us to become accountable and responsible and vigilant. We can't just say, ah, never mind. I've left a bag of chocolates out there and my dog is going to go and eat it. I can't just sit back and say, oh, that's okay. Never mind. I, I'm, I'm sure the dog won't eat the chocolates. The dog will eat the chocolates. If I create an environment without any watch over there and people know they can get away with murder, then then I can't just sit back and say, oh, but I, nothing's going to go wrong. It's all fine. But who's that person in the family who's going to become accountable and responsible without information, without conversations? That's the question. The first step in solving a problem is to acknowledge that it exists. Exactly. So there are no simple solutions to the questions you're asking. And there are no easy and quick fixes to the questions that you're raising because you know that child sexual, uh, this has been termed as a shadow pandemic, right? Hmm. COVID, the world came together. Shadow pandemic has been there, continues to be there, but there's very little conversation about it even today because it's very difficult to address it. That means a lot of things have to change. Just like for COVID, we had to change so many things, right? So many, we're still grappling with all the changes that are happening. Mm. And yet, despite all of this, you and your team are motoring through every single day, um, yes, trying to make thousands of homes safe spaces for all the people that live within it. Absolutely. Absolutely. One person in one family, if they're equipped and informed, and have the tools and they know what to do 
that one person in that one family is going to actually not only take care of their own family, but is also going to make sure that other families around them are also taken care of. Mm. So it's like Kunba bolte na humare community Kunba. So one family is then becoming the node for that one Kunba. That's the hope. That's the conviction, and yeah, that's the commitment. Umid pe dunia kaam hai. Umid and action. Umid and action. How do we aid and help Sakshi and the Rakshan project in everything that you are doing? So, so let me tell you a little bit about um, Sakshi and the Rakshan project, and then yes. get your conviction in, into this. What I'm saying, right? So, Sakshi has been um, on this journey of interrupting the cycle of sexual violence since 1992. Hmm. So, it's like three decades now, right? We started at a time when we did not have too many gender-based laws. So we did the public interest litigation with Shaka versus State of Rajasthan and got us the uh, what we now have as Posh Act 2013. Yes. We got Vishaka directions in 97 and the Posh Act in 2013. We did a public interest litigation on Sakshi versus Union of India, which was uh, for child sexual abuse, which went on to inform what you have now as POXO. 2012, and uh, it's also informed other acts. Uh, and we are now running this uh, project called the Rakshan Project, in which we said if 90% of it happens within the families, 50% are survivors, one in two, and and families are not a systemic unit where you can actually go and say, hey, listen, all offices, like we said for the Bishaka directions and posh, that all offices, all workspaces, all workspaces. um whether there more than nine people or less than nine people are going to have a mechanism within them inherent embedded within the system which is going to prevent sexual harassment from taking place hmm hmm okay? there the responsibility hmm. is not only to redress but also to prevent so prevent prohibit and redress right how do you do that for families because 90% is happening in non entrusted circles families and schools right So we said, okay. So how about identifying and working with one young adult within each family who is informed and is equipped with tools and information and education to be able to prevent. Na karenge na karne denge. Themselves as well, right? Na karenge so they know what is wrong, what is prohibited yeah. behavior, what is the boundary, what is the definition. Na karenge na karne denge. Agar ho raha hai. to rok denge hmm aur agar hua hai if 50% are survivors then most likely agar hua hai to bol ke rahenge you won't be stigmatized and shamed about it you will speak right. out say, right first step for healing first step for resolving is to be able to accept it right so we went and we requested the ministry of youth affairs and sports and uh, after a lot of conversations we finally got them to give us uh, permission and access to 40000 colleges across the country for wow. the nss units which is the national mm-hmm. service scheme mm-hmm. it means that these are students who have already enrolled with a service mindset mm-hmm. so they're already coming in here to say we want to serve our country we want to do and they also get credits for their work mm-hmm. the hours mm-hmm. that they put in over there right mm-hmm. so those are the group of students that they're working with Uh, we developed an entire program with about eighteen modules, twelve uh, certificates, and five levels of conversations, where they are learning how to prevent 
child sexual abuse within the family. We call them the Rakshin Raiders. Rakshins are people who prevent. Yeah. And Raiders are people who are equipped to recognize what are the sexually abusive behaviors, which we kind of have been you know, blanket over right mm. now. So how do you mm. actually start recognizing them? How do you address them? Now, address what? If suddenly I get to know, oh my God, my elder brother is doing something which is so prohibited, there's going to be a huge emotional trauma within you, right? Yeah. It's going to be a, it, it's big. Or if somebody that you respect, you discover somebody is doing some action which is not right, behaviors which are dysfunctional, then you're going to have an emotional backlash on that. So how do you address that? Then how do you identify, and then the burden is not completely on you. So how do you identify allies within your family, people who will be receptive to that conversation? It could be a mother, brother, sister, aunt, uncle, whoever. So how do you identify and build allies? Mm. If you're caught in a situation of conflict, how do you de-escalate that conflict? Okay, then Obviously, reporting mechanisms, if there's a situation that needs to be reported, where do you report, how do you report, what do you do? And most importantly, how do you resolve if you have been through something like that? So that's the yeah. Russian radar for us, R-A-I-D-R. Right? That's the program that we are running over here right now. And it takes us about a thousand rupees. So we're not getting any money from the ministry. We just got access from them. We're raising yeah. all the funding for doing this on our own and our it takes us about a thousand rupees to equip one child, one student, or we say one household to become mm. a capable of preventing child sexual abuse. And that's that's uh, the kind of uh, resources that we're trying to generate um, and uh, seek. And we also seek people who will be willing to learn with us and uh, deliver these trainings, deliver these right. things. We want to reach out to... 40,000 colleges every two years. That's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. So we need more people to join hands with us. So on one hand, we do need material resources, but we also need human resources. Indeed. So if anybody who's interested in really interrupting the cycle of sexual violence and do something proactively about it, you're welcome. Time and money. I'll, uh, of course, link these in the description below so people can... You know, click on those and 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 sign up. And for anyone listening in, um, please, of course, join in with whatever uh, capabilities or resources that that you might have. And um, I know it's a bit of a it's it's a bit of a departure from the episodes I've had in the past on this podcast. But I really wanted to talk about this with you um, because these are, as I mentioned in in the starting, these are serious concerns that we often choose to turn away from because it's uncomfortable to the reality of it the, the stark reality of it is uncomfortable to uh, acknowledge but it's important to at least at the start of this year um, you know to have more awareness about this and and hope thanks, that thanks for this opportunity because just today when I was talking to these young girls one of them said um, I'm feeling so free it's as if a huge burden has lifted from me because I'm able to speak about it. I said, okay, go deeper. What is it that's happened? She says, actually, you know what? I had such a burden of shame. And now that I've been able to talk about it and do something about it, it's as if the burden of shame has lifted from me and gone to the person who's the perpetrator. Yes. You know? So it's a... 
these are human lives that we're talking about, real people. Yes. Yes. How many of us have the courage to acknowledge to ourselves that we've been through an experience like this and uh, have been harmed by it and lived a life which could have been different? Decisions, choices, mm-hmm. actions. And that cycle has to break in schools at a younger age. The conditioning, the thought, the action, the shame, the consequences on the victim or the survivor. Yeah, and, uh, and I can just add to that, Anuj, a little bit and say, when we, when parents are getting admissions for their children or when they're coming in for their PTA meetings, they ask for many things. They ask for um, how you, uh, is the national education policy in place in the school? They ask if you have a swimming pool, maybe, or they ask if you have some what are the extracurricular activities the children are going to you know, undertake? Or what is your teaching methodology? They can also ask, is the school POXO compliant? Is my child safe over here? Have all the adults in the school been oriented and educated for POXO compliance? That includes everybody, teachers, management, administration, vendors, support staff. The five communities of adults which are engaging with your child, have they been made POXO compliant? That's a question parents should also be asking. Yes. That's a question schools should be asking. Wow. Thank you. for Every single time I speak with you, there's such, such an eye-opener. <laughs> and thank you for doing everything you're doing. It's not, it's, I, I, I mean, it's, it's too cliched, but it's not easy to, to do, to take that step every single day and then create an army of people who really believe, who have that conviction to to break the cycle. And let's hope we, we can create safer spaces in 2022 and going forward. Yes. So, inside and outside. Inside and outside. Thank you, Smithaji. Thank you. And Thanks congratulations. So You're a nani now. Yes. And happier very, days ahead. Very proud and happy nani. <laughs> Lovely. Thank you for being on Ed Talk with Anuj. Thank you. Thanks, Anuj. Thank you so much for this. Thank you for listening to Ed Talk with Anuj. I hope you enjoyed it. New episodes drop every other Friday. So don't forget to follow Ed Talk with Anuj on social media to stay updated. I'll see you next time. <laughs>